music history. I'm Liz. I'm Hazel. We are two friends who studied archaeology together and love history, domestic history, uh, food history, and all sorts of related things. Um, and we normally I how many things you were going to list there. <laughs> I ran out. <laughs> I'm out of ideas. Those are the only things we can talk about on this podcast. Okay. Um, <laughs> apart from what we've been making and or baking recently, uh, which is how we like to start off. So what have you been up to? Um, what have I been up to? It's been it's been a like a ridiculously busy, exhausted at the end of every day week. Mm. Um, so I, I have not been doing a lot, but I have been planning some some cooking for halloween because halloween have... related well we we have these candy molds now because i got a pack of them to do some soap embeds mm-hmm. so I'm, i might make some little like filled chocolates ah uh, fantastic especially because because my favorite um like boiled sweet is chocolate limes i've never had a chocolate lime it's a lime sweet with chocolate in the middle, kind of like chocolate eclair texture. So what I'm, um, what I'm thinking of doing is making some chocolates with lime curd inside, like a reverse chocolate lime. Oh, wow. Like a fancy version. Mm. Except also jack-o'-lantern shaped and ghost shaped. <laughs> Brilliant. That does sound pretty spooky. How about you? We all know green is the spookiest colour. Me, yeah. Also not that much. I've been on a bit of a finish some projects kick. So um, after I finished my Unspanyan shawl, I then finished my uh, Evenstar, which um, for those of you who don't know the name of every single knitting pattern, um, (laughs) it's a, a big, big intricate lacy shawl with a lot of beads around the border um and that's been going for a few years at this point (laughs) so I'm feeling quite accomplished I yeah I finished a massive lacy beaded shawl um I haven't blocked it yet but I will do that at some point and pictures will appear um so yeah that, that has been good um and that's pretty much it um so i'm kind of planning some new knitting projects now that i've finished a couple of things um and it's also getting towards the winter season uh, over here um it is i mean when this comes out it'll be like mid october yeah so i think i'm going to go for a jumper it's been a long time well, I've only ever knitted myself one jumper, and that was uh, about 10 years ago. <laughs> and it's still going strong. Um, <laughs> but I think it is about time to add another one to my wardrobe, and I'd like to do some colour work, because I've not really done much colour work knitting at all. Um, so I'm I'm planning that at the moment. Um, I... I'm kind of considering which, what what yarn to use. Um, I'd like it to be quite woolly, but um, relatively light, so I can wear it underneath jackets and coats and stuff. So, I believe you're gonna own two jumpers. So I will. <laughs> I will be a two jumper individual. <laughs> I do have more jumpers, but none of them are woolly, which is a crime. It's the best kind of jumper. For someone, I don't make a lot of garments, <laughs> and I'd really like to because I'd I'd like to wear my knitting more. But I make a lot of sh- shawls and fancy things, so that's uh, that's about it. So, what are we going to learn about this week? So, at the suggestion of, I believe, your boyfriend, um, I thought I would talk about rope. Ah, it's Joe's one. Amazing. I do want to know about rope. 
So I know I like to ask this question a lot, but it's always fun. What do you think the oldest piece of cordage found is? The oldest piece of cordage? Oh, I, I've read a few uh, articles about ancient cordage in the last few months, but I'm I, I'm not sure which would be considered most ancient. I'm I'm gonna go prehistoric, obviously, because I know that there have been examples. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm I'm gonna guess like ten thousand BC. More like fifty thousand years ago. Oh no way! Um, so a piece of string about the size of a pinky nail, um, three ply cord made from probably bark, was found on a Neanderthal site in France, um, Abri du Maras. Three ply, fifty thousand years ago. Yeah, that's incredible. Okay, for for um, anyone who isn't familiar with ply, the in a piece of string or yarn, um, it's made up of it's usually made up of two or more smaller threads twisted together, and the number of threads that makes up the string is the ply number. So with you know the simplest kind of cord or like string being just one twisted thread three of them is like quite a sophisticated thing yeah like modern modern rope is generally in threes like it's multiple three ply things then plied together but it's in threes and it is it is properly how we would do it it's three strands twisted clockwise then twisted around each other anti-clockwise oh wow that's so impressive so the neanderthals had string (gasps) Uh, that was only discovered a couple of years ago as well which is quite fun okay that's i mean that must change the the perception of neanderthals a bit Definitely. Um, there is also an Upper Paleolithic site in Germany, mm-hmm. um, which I am going to pronounce incorrectly, um, Hollerfels, where also in 2020, actually, a possible tool for making um, making rope or string was found uh probably 40,000 years ago okay so it's a piece of mammoth ivory with four holes drilled into it in a spiral and it is remarkably similar to tools used for making rope even now with like a spiral on the inner thing to help to twist one way and then what you do is you twist that actual piece the other way in order to make the the cordage oh yeah wow um interestingly this is the same site where the earliest known venus figurines oh right which is um the these prehistoric generally upper paleolithic which is the more recent part of the oldest part of the Stone Age, confusingly. Um, figurines of generally faceless, very rotund women <laughs> is probably how I would describe them. The, the Probably the most famous one would be the Venus of Willendorf? Yeah, I would say so. Which I think a lot of people might recognize being like yeah just a really sort of 
yeah, matronly if, if figure. Up, if you look up Venus figurines, you'll know them when you see them. It's very fat, very large-breasted, generally quite wide-hipped, faceless figures. Mm-hmm. Um, they also found a bone flute in this cave. This is um, in yeah, in Germany. But the fact that we have cordage and tools for making it from that long ago is just very cool to me. Yeah, it's it's fantastic to have like the thing and the method of producing the thing potentially. Um I that just like opens up so many opportunities for like I you know how how was this thing like made how much of it was being made like just especially with like how rare it is to find anything organic from that long ago absolutely but yeah the the theory of the archaeologists that found this tool is that the twists within the holes help to actually spin the fiber into a single ply that you can then twist together. Okay. That um, would be a... more more recent ones made of reindeer antler have been found in northern Europe, uh, fifteen thousand years old. Has anyone like tried them out? Not the exact ones. Well yeah. <laughs> um but I, I have seen examples of experimental archaeology where they've uh, recreated the reindeer ones. Okay. Um, we also have impressions of cordage. I should say, because I haven't actually said, cordage is basically any plied thing. It's yarn, it's string, it's rope. Anything you could define as a cord. Um, but in uh, Lascaux, in France, they found fossilized two-ply rope from about 15,000 BC, but we have impressions of cordage on pottery from as far back as 28,000 years ago. Oh, fantastic. So, like, we've had cordage for a while. <laughs> I didn't realise anyone anything had been preserved from, like, that far back. I mean, I guess it's one of the basic, you know, like when you're sitting down in the grass, you you start twisting the grass just kind of naturally. And then it's it's easy to see how that would emerge. I do know an archaeologist who has a theory that cordage originally evolved as a way of making it easier to carry pots, kind of making those like macrame pot holder things that you can then carry the pots around on those. Yeah. Which state I can believe that. <laughs> yeah, that seems plausible. I am not a prehistorian, but I, that seems plausible. <laughs> uh, we have evidence of the ancient Egyptians as actually uh, hieroglyphs of people making rope. Okay. Uh, I did have a date for that. Yeah, um, about four, like three to four thousand BC. Uh, twenty eight hundred BC. We've got hemp rope in China. So like, ev- everyone's making rope. Everyone's doing it. All sorts of materials. Uh, over in South America, we have um, kipu, which is a way of recording information in knotted string. Ah, which there is some controversy apparently about whether it's numerical information or a way of recording uh, like narrative. Okay, which is interesting, but I won't go into that because that's a whole thing on its own. Frankly, <laughs> we don't have time for academic tangents of controversy. It's just—it's more—it's just more. It's just more Everyone's got string, everyone's got rope. Uh-huh. 
Um, then we get into the Middle Ages and we have rope walks, which is one of my favourite things in history, honestly. Which so is... I have a, a vague idea of a rope, what a rope walk is, but um, I, well, what, what do not, you think not about is? medieval ones. Um, so I've seen, like, I've I've been to like dock museums and seen like the really long rooms. So how how are they doing that? back in the day um i mean basically the same as the industrial methods but without machines mm -hmm. so you have a very very long building or possibly even an outside space depending on climate uh -huh. where you have a very very long strand which you spin generally you twist clockwise and then you twist them together clockwise. I don't know why I guess clockwise is more of an instinctual direction for people as a yeah. rule so you do that one first um so you it's a very very long building so you can make these really long strands of rope um and then you have a mechanism at one end of the room which twists either mechanically or by a person turning a handle. And you have um, basically the same as these ampler and manif ivory pieces, um, some, which is sometimes referred to as a donkey. Amazing. Don't know why. like it though. Which you, pa you pass all of the strands through and you gradually mm. walk that along the rope so it doesn't all get twisted up too fast or end up twisting in the wrong place first. Ah, I see. As you walk that along, the strands all twist around each other, making its way up and just forming rope. Ah, Which so you can like... then seal at the end with, say, some tar is quite common. Mm -hmm. Wow. It must have taken quite a bit of strength then to make, you know, the, the big ropes they use on ships by hand. Absolutely, yeah. The thickness of some some ship ropes is ridiculous, and then the lengths of it that you need as well. Mm. Um, not medieval, but HMS Victory had fifty kilometers of rope. <laughs> That's a lot of rope, <laughs> which is about thirty-one miles. That's. I mean, I've cycled fifty kilometers in a day, um, which gives you an idea of how far fifty kilometers is. <laughs> Um, yeah, so rope walks actually still you can find evidence of them in place names like the okay. obvious one is the rope walks in Liverpool which uh -huh. is just an area of the city that used to have rope walks um, but apparently Cable Street in London is named for rope walks really? That's interesting. I've definitely walked along a few rope walks. You may have walked along more of them than you think. Mm. Uh, there was one in um, Lindholmen in Sweden, which created rope for a nearby naval base from the late 17th century until 1960. Oh, wow. Which is now a rope museum. Oh, that makes sense. I'll add that to the list of museums. Absolutely. Um, um, so there's also a rope museum in Rochefort in France called the Corderie Royale, mm. which was a, a functioning rope walk, also like similar time frame to the Swedish one, 1666 until the 1960s. Okay. Um, what? Which is probably a candidate for being a UNESCO World Heritage Site. <laughs> Oh, amazing. I suppose if it's been made in a mostly the same way for so long, that there's not much reason to stop. Yeah, I guess beyond updating the, the twisting technology. Hmm. Although I do love that you said about cycling um apparently one's bikes were were popular 
um, they they did use them in rope walks to go up and down the buildings quickly because some of these <laughs> some of them were like making three hundred meter long ropes, so obviously <laughs> the buildings would be even longer than that. Yeah. Oh, can you imagine if they'd had skateboards? They would have loved skateboards or segways. <laughs> can you imagine? Heelys. <laughs> yeah, but ropes were so important through most of history that there's actually... It pops up in surprising places. Like um, One of Da Vinci's machine concepts was for a rope-making machine. All right. Um, I will post a couple of pictures. Uh, there's a, a good picture of a small handheld rope making machine from the twenties that I will I will post when this episode goes up, and I will share with you now because it's a cute little machine. Oh, that is a cute little machine. <laughs> that is pretty. I mean, it's it's fairly substantial for a handheld machine. Um... That looks about sort of head size. I'd say so, yeah. Um, but it's it's doing the job. It's it's making some nice cordage. Yeah. But you can see on the machine the rope that the um strands that are attached to the spinning machine rotate themselves as well in order to create that um twisting both ways effect oh right because basically how cordage works is you twist one strand one way Mm -hmm. and around them themselves the other way as we've said and what that basically does is the friction holds them in place ah because they're trying to twist both ways at once, so they just don't go anywhere. Mm-hmm. And fun fact, you can also use this to create a two-strand braid in your hair. Ah, oh yeah! Which is referred to as a rope braid. Although you can do it with more strands as well, if you want a, a more accurate-looking rope. Because as I say, most ropes nowadays are three-on-three-on-three-on-three. So you can make your hair into living rope. Mm-hmm. That's pretty cool. Well, the modern rope doesn't really do that. Um, a lot of the time it's more braided. Okay. And it's generally made from um, artificial materials rather than hemp, which is, it's weaker when it's wet. So a lot of large ships still use more traditional materials. Ah. I remember reading about um, one of the tasks they would have people do in the workhouse being oakum picking, which is when you recycle rope, essentially. I was about to get to this. Oh, sorry. (laughs) I had no idea. so yeah, the yeah they were they were recycling rope, um, mm-hmm. and it's where the phrase "money for old rope" comes from. Oh right, uh, because what you would do is you would pick it apart, which was absolute hell on your fingers because they were generally coated in tar, mm. and also just generally sea weathered because this was mostly rope from from ships. Um. And basically a thing to keep their hands busy because they've got to do improving work in the workhouse or in prison. Hmm. Must be the deserving poor. Well, exactly. Uh, Girls and boys in the workhouse and the elderly in prison um, would be made to pick apart the strands of hemp from the rope, which would then be made into a substance called oakum which is a mixture of the hemp and tar used to fill the gaps between planks on ships mm-hmm. uh, which is actually still used now for various things including plumbing interestingly oh. um, but it's mostly made from new hemp or jute okay 
That sounds like the worst job. What, picking oakum? Yeah. Oh yeah, like people's fingers would bleed. Oh. We should. We'll probably do an episode on workhouses at some point. Honestly. Yeah, it's not going to be a a fun one, but <laughs> I think it's it it's good to do because like I meet people who have never heard of like what a workhouse is or that we used to have them, and I think it's an important thing to know about. yeah um side note apparently some oakum also contained asbestos oh oh no because that that just gets it everywhere that's even worse um so i just want to talk about a couple of more unusual uses of ropes okay um well it's because rope we think of mostly as construction tying things to each other, ships, that kind of thing. Um, so I do want to briefly talk about lassos. Okay, is that like a, a specific, like a, a whole different kind of thing? Um, no, it, it is It is a rope thing. But it's also a lot older than we think because everything is. <laughs> um, there is a carving of Pharaoh Seti I. Um, from around 1280 BC, showing him lassoing a bull. That's pretty metal. Um, there's records of the Huns using them to ensnare enemies in, th- in 370. They're mentioned <laughs> by Herodotus as being used by the Sagatians of northern Iran. Okay. Like, I just wanted to point out how old lassos are because I think that's cool. That is pretty cool. Like you I... are entirely free to picture Attila the Hun lassoing someone. <laughs> like you were anyway, but now it's historically accurate. Um, rootin' tootin' barbarians. Um, they're actually still used by the Sami in reindeer herding as well, which is interesting. Okay. Um, but yeah, like it's not, it's not just cowboys. Like they, they got the yeah. idea from somewhere, and that was large swathes of Europe, Asia, and North Africa. Yeah, if it works. Um, the other unusual use of rope I want to talk about because we probably won't get another chance to talk about it is um hojujutsu. Okay. Which you might guess from the name is Japanese. It's a martial art uh, that involves restraining people with cord or rope. Right. Um, but it's nowadays it is in quite an aesthetic way, and it's related to shibari. Ah, I thought that rang a bell. Okay. Huh, so, is it a special kind of rope? Um. Yeah, there are two kinds of, of rope used. Um, there's a thinner one called um, Hayanawa, which is fast rope, mm-hmm. which is gen- was generally for things like um, just restraining a prisoner when you're arresting them, kind of a preco- precursor to handcuffs. Okay. Uh, often used by samurai, apparently, and carried near the sword. Which I quite like, because you, you can imagine one like reaching towards the sheath, and it's like, depending on how you react, it could draw the sword or the rope. <laughs> and then there's a Torinawa, which is capture rope, and is used more for restraining someone who's like resisting arrest, and you need to tie them up quickly. Okay. Although there are, there apparently were still aesthetic concerns Mm -hmm. and also things like um, if someone was accused but not convicted you would tie them up in a different way that didn't have proper knots so that they weren't shamed by being publicly tied up okay 
feel like some of the ways it's used now, because it's it's more of a thing people do out of interest rather than for work at this point, obviously. Yeah. And things like that exist. Um but yeah, and it, it also evolved into Shibari because people um, <laughs> what is the clean tag friendly way of describing Shibari? When two people <laughs> like each other very much, sometimes they tie each other up in interesting ways. <laughs> Pretty much. I mean, and, and that can also just be purely artistic, right? Yeah, people do it as as a means of artistic expression as well. But the what it's how most people would encounter it, I think, is mm-hmm. the former. Um, but I've, I might post some examples of um, Safer Work Shibari, actually, because it's really beautiful sometimes. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Oh wow, I hadn't thought of that as I guess um, in the category of martial art, but yeah. Well, if you think about that. it, it's kind of a more aesthetically pleasing hog tie. <laughs> At least that's what I thought when I saw pictures of it. <laughs> so that is that is my brief history of rope. Yeah. But I mean, I mean, brief history, like it, it covered a lot of time. <laughs> we started in 50,000 BC. I mean, I could have gone longer, but I've been talking for 45 minutes. <laughs> oh, wow. Have we got that? Okay. <laughs> I didn't even realise. You've told a good yarn. Hey. But, um, <laughs> um, oh, and that makes a fantastic segue. Because, you know, puns, you either love them or you hate them. Um, and you will either love or hate our local larder. Because I'm going to talk about Marmite. Personally not a fan, I have to say. No! Oh, for some reason I, th- I thought you liked it. No, I, I despise Marmite. I love puns. <laughs> Maybe that's why you get it confused. Maybe you can only like one of them. I like puns and marmite, so what kind of monster does that make me? You are the protagonist of this new YA series. <laughs> yeah, so Marmite um is pretty famous. Um and there are many different versions of what it is. So um Marmite is a yeast extract spread. Um, Sounds delicious. Oh yeah. (laughs) So Marmite is probably, at least in Europe and probably North America, the most famous brand of yeast extract. But there is also Vegemite, um, our mate, there is Aussie-mite, um yeah uh there's a swiss version there's a german version called vitam r um yeah and and there's also yeast extract isn't um you know patented so there's lots of different own brand versions um you you can get it pretty much worldwide Mm -hmm. so what makes it local um and in my opinion it tastes delicious (laughs) But it has a very strong taste. Um, if if you've ever tried like any yeast extract, you will know. Like it's it's kind of wow. Hello. If you've ever had Twiglets, it tastes exactly like Twiglets, but liquid. <laughs> yeah, they do taste a bit like Marmite. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so Marmite just being the most popular brand name of yeast extract, as far as I know. Um, so, <laughs> uh, the process of creating this and, and how it became a thing that was eaten is quite interesting, because it's not something that like, is obvious as a food. Um, you know, no, nobody had a huge desire to 
turn brewer's yeast into a spread. It kind of just evolved from various, like, biochemistry discoveries. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so it's... Um, so to start off with, it's made from brewer's yeast, which is yeast used in the production of beer. Um, and it was invented, or the process of breaking down brewer's yeast um, to be able to make a spread out of it, um, was invented by the German scientist Justus von Liebig in the late 19th century, which is a fantastic name. Now, mm -hmm. I have read in several places that he invented Marmite. Um, he didn't exactly. He is um, a quite a famous um, German chemist, um, lived from 1803 to 1873, and considered like one of the founders of organic chemistry. And he also um, invented like lab teaching <laughs> as well for as a form of chemistry teaching um wait were people not learning chemistry in a chemistry setting before that apparently not what um, were they doing <laughs> i'm not sure uh if anyone knows anything about pre-19th century chemistry teaching please let us know <laughs> Someone, um, someone out there does. They might not listen to this show, but someone out there does. But apparently this guy, um, or at least not commonly. Um, so he did a lot of work on um, like nutrient extraction, and he developed a process for manufacturing beef extract and created his own company. Um, but he also did this with yeast, and that made the creation of yeast extract possible. Um, now, why would anyone possibly... Sorry, go on. Is beef extract the same as bovril? Am I yeah. the right thing? Yes, yep. Um, and, like, stock cubes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, why would anyone want to eat yeast extract? You might ask. Um, yeah, well, I turns... do every time I see a jar of marmite. <laughs> well, it turns out it's actually quite good for you. Um, it was originally marketed as a health food. Of course, it was. Contains it a... was. <laughs> it contains a lot of B vitamins. Um, naturally, mm -hmm. uh, and it's also high in glutinate acid. Glut glutamate acid that's the one um which means it's got a really kind of umami taste um yeah so it you know it's also used as a, a flavoring people like the flavor some people like the flavor <laughs> like me um and it is also genuinely quite good for you um so in, in fact uh, Marmite, as in European Marmite, uh, the company was founded, uh, the brand was founded in 1902 and it was originally uh, sold under the slogan, the growing up spread that you don't grow out of so like it's healthy for children and all the family <laughs> I'm sorry, that's just so terrible <laughs> <laughs> it's very um very 30s very, yeah it's like only in the 30s could you have had that as a tagline <laughs> yes um so the reason it's called marmite is because it originally came in like clay pots so that's actually on the label i'll i'll put a picture of a marmite jar on the Twitter, um, and on the label of the modern my mind jar is a picture of the the clay dish that it was originally uh, produced in, um, which in French is called a marmite. So that's why so it's, it's called it's marmite. That's French. Yes. <laughs> so if you so yeah, marmite being um, 
actually pretty good for you. They would serve it in schools and hospitals. <laughs> which, you know, it will perk you up one way or the other. Um, <laughs> and it was included in ration packs in World War I um, and World War II. Uh, yeah, so it's it's been popular for over a century, um, for for both its flavour and you know that that is actually quite good for you. And it now has added vitamins in it, um, so it has folic acid and it has uh, B twelve in it now. So if you're vegan, then marmite is a good option. Um, it's had some interesting marketing campaigns over the years. Um, more interesting than the growing up spread. <laughs> yeah, so there's the famous slogan, you either love it or you hate it. Um, they've been using that for a while. And to be fair, it's true. So they sort of capitalised on the fact that their product is very polarising. <laughs> Um, and they also, uh, okay, this is um, thanks to the Museum of Brands, which has listed uh, all of the Marmite marketing campaigns. Um, you might remember this. There was a Marmite advert in 2004, where, which was like a, a B-movie style advert with like people f like running away screaming from a giant jar of Marmite don't and remember this but in my defense i would have been nine i actually Didn't do really remember pay attention it. to adverts at that point that was just when <laughs> i went to the toilet <laughs> uh, no i actually do remember this advert now apparently <laughs> it was taken off tv after parents said that their children had been too scared by it and had nightmares marmite nightmares marmite nightmares Amazing. So yeah, um, let us know if you ever had nightmares that Marmite was coming to get you. Or if you do after this episode. Use use the hashtag Marmite Menace. Yeah. <laughs> Get it trending. Uh yes, and uh <laughs> Marmite remains popular to this day. Um and honestly, something being Marmite has now, at least in Britain, it's just entered language. Like, mm. you'll use it as an analogy. Like, you know, if something is controversial, you can say, oh, it's Marmite. Because... Marmite does with Brexit on them. Did they? And that was a whole thing. Okay. I'm, I don't remember if it was like a limited edition thing, but I'm sure there was Brexit Marmite. Right, that's interesting. <laughs> if anyone else remembers Brexit Marmite, let me know that I'm not a massive I'm not sure about that. But to be fair to Unilever that now owns the brand, um, when the, the British National Party, which was a British right-wing party, um, tried to use it as part of their uh, campaign, uh, they did sue them. So Quite right. <laughs> exactly quite right too <laughs> um yes uh <laughs> i'm sure i didn't <laughs> was that a marmite there did you just dream it <laughs> um yeah so many of you listening might be more used to a different brand of yeast extract it was um, it was they did like a limited edition thing. Oh. Of Love You and Hate You labels. Oh my god. That's some extremely cynical marketing. <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> okay, I'm I'm speechless. Um <laughs> I've just noticed um, you can get it in a squeezy bottle as well, and I'm not sure how I feel about that. You can. You can also get 
engraved like i don't think it's actually sold by marmite but you can get like personalized marmite jars mm. engraved amazing um yeah so how ways that you can enjoy marmite um i like a classic marmite on buttered toast you only need a bit cheese sandwich marmite and cheese sandwich or toasty even better i think that's a classic combination uh marmite scones i've seen marmite hummus that was actually quite nice <laughs> you can't see my face but i'm disgusted why would you yeah just <laughs> just a little marmite flavoring a, a different thing something buttery or cheesy is is a good good solid choice i mean that that does make sense to me because yeast extract is an ingredient in a lot of like meaty tinned soups to make it taste richer mm. yeah again it kinda... if you get like a tinned oxtail soup or a tinned beef soup it's gonna have yeast extract in oh, okay yeah yeah i guess that kind of strong sort of dark flavor mm. to things um it tastes more brown <laughs> so in terms of the flavor um a lot of you might be used to a different brand using a slightly different recipe the recipe is closely guarded um, because they do add a, a sort of different spice and vegetable flavours to it as well. Um, but there are different versions, like I mentioned Vegemite is the most famous Australian one. Um, that was developed because of shortages of Marmite exports to, due to the First World War. Amazing, they just needed Marmite so badly. <laughs> they, they just really couldn't go without. Um, and interestingly, um, Marmite, European Marmite, the reason I keep saying European Marmite is because Mar the Marmite brand that is owned by Unilever and distributed in Europe under the name Marmite um, is not the only brand called Marmite. <laughs> there is an Australian Marmite that is also named Marmite that is sold in Australia and New Zealand. So there's Marmite, and there's Vegemite, and there's other Marmite. Yeah. So there's European Marmite, and there's Australian Marmite, um, which means that to sell European Marmite in Australia, they had to call it something different. Because there was already a Marmite. What do they call it? Is it bad? It's called Our Mate. Oh, no. <laughs> no, I don't like that. <laughs> which you know having grown up with marmite feels a bit wrong but <laughs> uh, that's what it's called but australian marmite is a different recipe so i haven't tried it yet i aim to one day so i can decide like which which i prefer um so you yeah many in australia who can send us some australian marmite <laughs> <laughs> many many kinds of yeast extract to choose from uh now i am going to finish the episode with a recipe for your a marmite cocktail no yes no are you ready Promise. <laughs> it's called the marmite gold rush oh, no. now this chris was created uh at a very fancy restaurant in london and people were paying £15 for this concoction of alcohol and marmite. No. <laughs> uh, the Marmite Gold Rush contains grapefruit juice, vodka, sugar cane syrup, and Marmite Gold, which is Marmite that contains actual gold flakes. Why? Why would you put gold in Marmite? <laughs> don't know but they did they put everything in marmite at this point and now they've put marmite in other things and one of them is alcohol why <laughs> they served it with a teapot of marmite flavored steam i'm not sure what you're meant to do with that what flavored steam <laughs> flavored steam in a teapot <laughs> Someone needs to stop artisanal restaurants. 
I'm speechless. <laughs> oh, God, good grief. Um, that seems like the point to end the episode. <laughs> Please try this at home and send us pictures. Uh, if you want access to recipes which are not for Marmite cocktails. Uh, you don't have to use the gold flavoured Marmite, it's probably fine. Um, but yes, if you for some reason don't <laughs> want that. Um, as well as access to a Discord server where we chat about crafts and food and have been getting weirdly political lately um, because that happens on this show. We get very close to rich people. That's um, our history is kind of political. Yeah. Then you can go to patreon.com slash bread and thread. You can also find us on Twitter at bread and thread where we will announce our upcoming episodes with teasers. You can see pictures of things that we talk about on the podcast, like a beautiful jar of Marmite. Uh, and also if you want to see any other stuff that we retweet or, or tweet at us, I don't know, I just like saying tweet, um, you can find us there. Tweet us about your Marmite mares. <laughs> Please. Please Is anyone just picturing a horse made of Marmite? If anyone wants to tweet that at us as well, I want to see it. Um, <laughs> Fat up, please. That same stuff is also on Tumblr, at Bread and Thread. If you have an episode suggestion or local order suggestion and are not dating one of us, um, you can email breadandthreadpodcast at gmail.com. Oh, are we only allowed one episode request per partner? I mean, Nick's done a couple of episodes, so I think I... that would be unfair. That's true, they've earned it. <laughs> I was just thinking more Joe does not have to email you in order to request an episode. <laughs> that would be a weird relationship. But what if he wants to do it properly? <laughs> I mean... I can't be showing favouritism. He can, he just doesn't have to. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you for listening and we'll see you next time